Well, to think, uh, think back a few years, in 1966, there was an American theolo theologian by the name of Joseph Flesher, and he published a book that proved to be very influential, and it was a book that became very popular, especially within liberal Protestant churches. The book was entitled Situation Ethics, The New Morality. And even if the book title isn't familiar to you, perhaps you have run across that phrase before, situational ethics. And this is the book that really popularized that, that view. The basic premise of Fletcher's book is that according to Jesus, love trumps everything. That was uh, you know, kind of the, the foundation of, of his argument. And so he goes on to argue that when a Christian is faced with a moral decision, rather than adhering to a fixed set of moral standards, he or she must always ask the question, in these circumstances, what is the most loving thing to do? So that kind of became the, the foundation point of, of his argument. <clears throat> Here's the way he expressed it in his own words. He wrote, nothing is inherently right or wrong. You agree with that? <laughs> nothing is inherently right or wrong. Everything should be done according to the most loving thing for a specific situation. Hence, situation ethics. Well, I was in high school at the time that the book uh, hit the market, and it quickly became the subject of much con uh, conversation. I should have about to say controversy. It should have been controversy, but instead it was conversation. <laughs> and that included the liberal Pro Protestant church that I was attending with my family at the time. Well, not surprisingly, Fletcher's views were well-received within the church that I was uh, attending. And the reason for that is that it basically gave full expression to the path that that church was already on. Love became the mantra, and it led to all kinds of conclusions within the church. So uh, within this church, you would hear comments like, it's okay for couples to live together without getting married as long as they love each other. Or... It would be reasonable to withhold the portion of your federal tax dollars that would go to military spending because military spending is incompatible with love. So these, these were the kinds of viewpoints that you would hear. By the 1970s, the, ch the church gave full approval to homosexual relationships, provided they were monogamous. Uh, the idea was that if two people love each other, who's to interfere? To think otherwise is unbiblical and wrong. That was the argument of the pastor. Well, beyond these sorts of moral positions, this particular church actually took pride in these liberal perspectives, and the church was highly critical of churches that they labeled as uh, fundamentalist or uh, anti-intellectual, narrow-minded, judgmental. Uh, those kinds of terms were used for conservative churches. Well, where does this kind of thinking come from? <laughs> well, it's not hard to imagine. It's what happens when the church stops heeding the infallible word of God and instead looks to human wisdom, relying on human viewpoint thinking, and the result is disastrous. Moral standards uh, kind of go out the window. They become twisted. The church begins to look a whole lot like the world, and perhaps sometimes the church even looks worse than the world. But this isn't a new issue. You know, this sort of disregard of Scripture and turning instead to human viewpoint, worldly thinking, was the underlying source of trouble in the church at Corinth. The Corinthian church's failure to reject human wisdom and replace it with the truth of God's word uh, left the door wide open for all kinds of immoral behavior, 
putting the purity of the church in serious jeopardy. And as we're going to see, the church in Corinth even went so far as to, to boast about a church member who was living in open sin, as if accepting him was something to be proud of. And clearly, this was an issue that needed to be addressed, and that's precisely what the Apostle Paul does in chapter 5. And so the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 could be expressed like this. The moral purity of the church matters to God, and every church member has the responsibility to pursue it. The moral purity of the church matters to God, and every church member has the responsibility to pursue it. Well, again, just to back up a little bit, as we've seen, the fact that at the outset of this letter, the Apostle Paul devotes four full chapters uh, to the issue of divisions within the church at Corinth kind of underscores the fact that uh, this was a serious issue within the church, the divisions that we even heard about uh, in the sermon this morning. And we saw that the underlying problem in the church in Corinth was that they still clung to the world's way of thinking in regard to their spiritual leaders with different factions placing their favorite leader on a pedestal. And the implication was that not only were they taking their guy and putting him on a pedestal, but they were kind of downplaying the others. Uh, and that's where the, the divisions were uh, coming from. In chapter 3, verse 3, we read this a couple of weeks ago. Paul writes, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? So though they were followers of Christ, they were still holding on to a fleshly way of thinking, reflecting the world's standards and not Christ. Well, Paul went on to explain that they were exalting men uh, instead of seeing these leaders as simply servants of God. Again, as we heard this morning, they needed to recognize that it is the work of God alone that results in changed hearts and spiritual growth. And so at the end of chapter 3, Paul exclaims this. He said, so then let no one boast in men. Well, then in chapter 4, Paul again admonished the, the Corinthians for their prideful arrogance in this matter as he kind of outlined the characteristics of true servant leadership. So, was the disunity in the Corinthian church an isolated instance of worldly thinking affecting this particular church? Is that kind of the one category where they were, they were worldly in their thinking? Well, when we come to chapter 5, we quickly discover that the answer to that question is no. <laughs> Sadly, it's not an isolated incident. In fact, throughout chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul admonishes the Corinthians for clinging to human viewpoint uh, reasoning instead of uh, focusing on the clear commands of God. So you could think of this church as, this is a church that is characterized by disobedience to the word of God. Well, a few weeks ago, when we began our study of this letter, we took a brief look at the historical and cultural characteristics of Corinth. Uh, Sin City, you might regard it. Uh, you know, at that time, we discovered that Corinth was notorious for being the focal point within the Roman Empire for sexual sin and debauchery of all sorts. So it isn't surprising that issues of immoral and inappropriate conduct within the church are topics of these two chapters, chapters 5 and 6. So as we turn to chapter 5, we find the first matter of concern, as Paul writes to them, about an appalling report. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. 
It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So when Paul says it is actually reported, that opening phrase, the Greek construction there that he uses indicates continuous action. So it isn't like one day somebody came up to Paul and just kind of whispered in his ear, uh, did you hear what's going on in Corinth? Quite the contrary. What Paul is saying here, the wording that he's using, the way it's structured, what he's saying is this issue is widely known because it keeps being repeated and it's spreading everywhere. So this is something, this is an issue that had become very public and uh, it, it was spreading throughout the, the Christian world, uh, this report of immorality. And it was uh, that there is gross immorality at the church at Corinth. So again, looking at the uh, first portion of the verse, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Now the word translated immorality there is the Greek word pornea, and it's a word that encompasses any sort of sexual activity outside of sex in marriage. You probably recognize it as the root for the English word pornography. And in fact, some other translations, such as the Legacy Bible or the ESV, uh, they translate pornea as sexual immorality, just to make it clear that that word is really talking about sexual sin. It's not immorality in general. It's talking about uh, sexual sin. So Paul's not talking here about just uh, any kind of immorality. It's, it's more specific than that in this instance. So what does Paul say in the middle of the verse to make the point that this uh, report that he's received doesn't involve just kind of some run-of-the-mill sexual sin? What does he say? It's just, a, just kind of an ordinary thing that, that happens all the time? Yeah, yeah. He says, <laughs> this is immorality. This is a sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Wow. <laughs> and you're saying this in Corinth? <laughs> that, that's an amazing statement. Uh, you know, knowing the prevalence of sexual immorality within the Roman Empire, and specifically within Corinth, it's a shocking statement. Well, then at the end of the verse, Paul reveals the specific sin. He says that someone has his father's wife. Well, this is a statement that's kind of a concise way of explaining that there was a man in the Corinthian church, a, a member of the Corinthian church, who was involved in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. It's a sin that falls under the category of incest as spelled out in God's law in Leviticus 18 and then it's repeated in Deuteronomy. And it was punishable in Israel by death. What's more, and this is what's kind of surprising, this was even a violation of Roman law that even the Gentiles saw this as, you don't do this, it's, it's wrong. And that explains Paul's statement that this is immorality of a sort that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. So, that was the situation. But then in verse two, Paul goes on to explain that this horrible situation has been made even worse by the church's inappropriate response. Look at verse two. For you have become arrogant. You have become arrogant. <laughs> 
this sin was, it was no carefully hidden secret. This was a very public sin. The members of this church were well aware of what was going on, and yet how did the church react to it? Let's brag about it. <laughs> yeah, the prevailing mindset was one of, of pride and, and of arrogance. Yeah, that seems so strange, doesn't it? When he says you have become arrogant, literally the phrase is uh, you have become puffed up, puffed up with pride. Uh, that's how the church has responded to this sin. Now that seems like an odd response, doesn't it? You know, you can imagine somebody sinning in the church and the church saying, ah, oh, this, look at this, this is, this is great. Uh, you know, here's behavior that's so sinful, even the pagan unbelievers would not go that far. So the attitude of the Corinthian church is the sort of response that occurs when believers reject what God has said, reject God's standards, where they're saying, you know, there, there is no standard of right and wrong, uh, and instead they rely on human wisdom, leading the church to go even beyond the world's standards. So the Corinthians' thought process, you know, we don't know exactly what they were thinking, but their thought process uh, might have been something like this. So here, here might be a member of the Corinthian church would say, Jesus said all men will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. That means we are not to condemn people but to be accepting. After all, this man and his stepmother clearly are in a love relationship with each other and what they do as individuals is up to them. Sounds like the church I grew up in. After all, when there are two consenting adults, there is no harm being done. And as for us, we are a church body that is not harsh and narrow-minded. Rather, we are loving and accepting of all. Well, this is the sort of thinking that characterizes a church that has neglected the truth of Scripture, and they have replaced it with uh, worldly, man-centered man uh, thinking. Well, in the remainder of the verse, Paul explains the appropriate biblical response. So again, look at verse two. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. So rather than strutting in arrogance, what should the Corinthian believers have been doing? Yeah, they should have been doing church discipline. What should their attitude have been? Mourning. Yeah, not boasting, but mourning. They, they should have been grieving over this heinous sin. And what step should they have taken with this guy? And, and removed him. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is a guy that's been doing this for a long time. He's unrepentant, and excommunication would have been the appropriate step to take. Well, do you think the Corinthian church should have known that this was a serious sin, an act that is offensive to God, and that the, mat, the man should have been placed under church discipline? So do you, think they, do you think they understood God's standard, and do you think they understood how the church is to respond to something like this? Yeah. How long had Paul been there? Do you remember? Year and a half. Paul, they had been under Paul's instruction for a year and a half. And then after Paul departed, who came? Apollos. 
Remember uh, the description of, of Apollos in, in Acts tells us that he was a man described as being mighty in the scriptures. So they had the teaching of Paul and then they had the teaching of Apollos. Do you think they had heard Leviticus chapter 18 before on incest? Absolutely they had. Do you think Paul had ever talked to them about church discipline and, and how to follow that, the teachings of Jesus on that subject? Yeah, and in fact, <laughs> we know that they had God's moral law. We know that they had the importance of church discipline because of what he says in verse 9. Look down in verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Remember we talked some weeks ago about the fact that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul had written to the church in Corinth. He had written to them before. And what was the issue that he had written to them about? Immoral people in the church. Yeah, he had already instructed them to deal with the sin in their midst. But they were not yet willing to obey, were they? So the response to this sin was shameful and inexcusable. And next we encounter the Apostle Paul's response. Look at verses uh, 3 through 5. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, notice that Paul makes it clear regarding this man that uh, Paul's verdict is guilty. <laughs> you know, the implication here is that Paul understood everything that he needed to know about this man and what this man had been doing and how long he'd been doing it. He knows the situation and he knows enough about it to make the right call. In our vernacular, we might term this set of circumstances uh, from Paul's perspective as it's a no-brainer. Uh, the, the issue here is, is just clear. So Paul states very clearly that even though he's not physically present, he has judged this man to be guilty all the same. But he goes on to explain that this situation must be dealt with in accordance with the biblical administration of justice. Look at verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, and we'll stop at that, at that point. You know, here he calls them to assemble as a church body in whose name? They're to gather in Jesus' name, aren't they? You know, the name of the Lord Jesus. And, and Paul assures them that he will be present in spirit, meaning he is, he's fully behind uh, the action uh, that he is instructing them to, to carry out. And by what power and authority are they to do this? Is this something that they just do on their own? Yeah, it's with the power of, of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? So if you're wondering about the source of Paul's admonition here, this, this set of instructions that he's giving in verse 4, I invite you to turn to Matthew 18, where Jesus offers uh, the instructions for carrying out church discipline. Matthew 18, I'm going to start at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, 
take one or two more witnesses, excuse me, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we'll stop at that point here for a moment. So in the case of the Corinthian man, although uh, steps one and two probably were never carried out, the situation is clearly at step three because the whole church has been aware of this man's sin for some time and the man has not repented. And that means he is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector, as Jesus says here. In other words, he's to be treated as an evangelistic prospect, as somebody who is, is not a part of the church, who is outside of the church. He's to be removed from fellowship and treated like an unbeliever in the hope that he may yet repent. And repentance is always the goal of church discipline at every step. You know, you saw that in step one. If, you're, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Well, winning your brother is, is always the uh, intent at, at each uh, point of discipline here. But notice what Jesus says about the authority of the church as he continues in verse 18. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This statement tells us that when church exercises discipline, the church has the full authority of heaven. That's what Jesus is really saying here. I think John MacArthur's summary of this point is particularly helpful. Here's what he writes. He says, The sum of it all means that any duly constituted body of believers acting in accord with God's word has the authority to declare if someone is forgiven or unforgiven. The church's authority is not to determine these things, but to declare the judgment of heaven based on the principles of God's word. When they make such judgments on the basis of God's word, they can be sure heaven is in accord. In other words, whatever they bind or loose on earth is already bound or loosed in heaven. When the church says the unrepentant person is bound in sin, the church is saying what God says about that person. And when the church acknowledges that a repentant person has been loosed from that sin, God agrees. So I think that's the idea of what Jesus is expressing here in verse 18, that the church is acting in accord with what uh, God has said in his word and in accord with uh, the decision of heaven. This is the power of our Lord Jesus that Paul is speaking about in verse 4 in our Corinthian passage, and uh, it's the authority given to the church. Well, while we're still in Matthew 18, notice how Jesus concludes the passage in verses 19 and 20. He says, again, I say to you that if two, or you, if two of you excuse me, on earth agree about anything, they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. So with that in mind, go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. So when ta Paul talks here about being assembled in the name of our Lord, that terminology should ring a bell. It comes from, from Jesus' statement that where two or three are gathered, there I am I in the, in the midst. And uh, it's, it's totally consistent with Jesus' teaching on church discipline. 
When the church is assembled in Jesus' Jesus' name, it's a reminder that Jesus himself is present as they carry out his instructions on discipline and they have the power and authority of Jesus himself. And so what Paul is doing in verse 4 is just reminding the Corinthian church of their responsibility to carry out church discipline just as Jesus taught and to do it in Jesus' name and to do it with Jesus' full authority. Paul's reminding them that as a church, this is their responsibility and this is what they already should have done. And so Paul gives the sentence, excommunication. Look at verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, who did Jesus identify as the ruler of this world? Who did Jesus say is the ruler of this world? Satan. Yeah, if you've got any doubts about that, um, read the Gospel of John. Read chapter 14 and chapter 16. Multiple times in those chapters, Jesus refers to Satan as being uh, the ruler of this world. So how would the church do this? How would the church deliver this man to Satan? How would they deliver him to the ruler of this world? What's that mean? What's it look like? It's excommunication. Yeah, it, it's, it's simply sending him out of the church, which is Christ's realm, and sending him out into the world, which is Satan's realm. And it's just another way of saying that they're to put the man out of the church. It's the final step of church discipline. And when this happens, the unrepentant sinner is removed from the protection the Lord provides through his church along with the the guidance of of the elders and the fellowship of its members. When you think about it, the church is kind of like like an umbrella of of protection over over all of us. And uh, now to be sent out from under that protection, um, it's not a good place to be, that is for sure. So this man who was guilty of incest, was he a a believer or an unbeliever? Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. We really don't know. But notice that Paul gives this man the benefit of the doubt. You know, Satan can cause great suffering to the human body, can't he? Just think about Job. <laughs> yes, yeah, Satan raked him uh, over, over, the coal, over the coals. And uh, premature physical death can occur as well. You know, later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to read about those who were uh, abusing the Lord's table and Paul writes that some of them have, have died. You know, they've died prematurely because of uh, their sin. So it's just a matter of, of what the Lord wills. But Satan cannot touch the spirit of a true believer. And so Paul affirms that if this man is truly in Christ, he will still be saved at the judgment. You know, in, in spite of what he's done, uh, he will still uh, be saved. So Paul's kind of affirming that we can't see in the heart. We don't know what's going on in the inside, uh, but he gives him the benefit of the doubt by saying this. You'll notice, too, that Paul doesn't say a word about the man's stepmother, even though she's guilty of the same sin. Did you notice that? She's not mentioned at all. And the implication is that she was not a professing believer and she wasn't a part of the church. If she had been, you can be sure that she would be uh, mentioned here as well. By the way, the man's father isn't mentioned either. We, we have no idea, you know, is he living? Is he dead? Is he divorced? You know, we, we, we simply don't know. And I guess in a sense it's irrelevant. Paul says what's relevant is you've got a guy in the church 
who is involved in blatant sin, and you guys are proud of it. That's, that's the issue. Well, having outlined what the Corinthian church must do to rectify this situation, Paul now rebukes the church as he addresses the bigger issue, and that's the importance of maintaining purity in the church. And so in the next section, we come to Paul's admonition to the church. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We'll take a look at verse 6. What's Paul's take on the fact that they are proud of being inclusive and welcoming? Yeah, yeah. What does he say about their attitude? First phrase, verse 6, this is not rocket science. Your boasting is not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how, how much more direct could Paul be than that? You know, what they have allowed to happen in their midst has done great damage to the church. It's what, what Brian is saying. You know, not only are they blind to it, they're actually proud of it. It's just so unfitting. But this one incident is symptomatic of a broader issue, and that is an issue of, of, of a relaxed attitude toward immorality and a failure to understand the insidious nature of sin, the pervasive nature of sin. It's like a, a cancer that keeps on spreading. It's like a virus that, uh, that spreads. So here Paul uses an illustration from everyday life to make his point. Look at verse six again. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You know, consider the making of bread. When just a small amount of leaven, of, of, of yeast, is added to the dough, it, it permeates the entire lump. That's, that's Paul's point here. You know, in Scripture, leaven is often used to illustrate sin. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which was a reference to the Jewish leader's position that external obedience was all that was necessary to please God. You know, that teaching, it was a misleading lie and it was sin. It was an idea that spread in its influence, and just like leaven uh, affects an entire lump of dough. So Paul is drawing an analogy with the lump of dough being like the church. So how much leaven does it take to affect the whole lump of dough? What does he say? Just a little. How much sin does it take to affect the whole church? Just a little, not very much. Yeah. So Paul's implication here is that the purity of the church matters to God, and it doesn't take much to destroy it. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, just for a moment. You can keep your, your finger in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's see, Ephesians, 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 here it is, Ephesians 5, verse 25, familiar verses. Paul writes, husbands, love your wives, okay? <laughs> and then here's how he illustrates that point. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, why? 
so that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Does the purity of the church matter to God? Absolutely it does. You know, when you think about countryside, the reality is that countryside is not our church. <laughs> it is Christ's church. As a body of believers, we are a part of Christ's church. It's the church that he loves. It's the church that he died for. It's the church that he is sanctifying, that he might present to himself a church that is holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle in all her glory. The purity of the church matters to God, and it's God's goal for the church. Well, in verses 7 and 8, Paul expands his illustration of sin being like leaven as he admonishes the Corinthians to deal with the sin in the church. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sanctified. Excuse me, has been sacrificed. So, verse 7 Paul here is making a point using an illustration based on the celebration of Passover. You know, the Lord had instructed the Jews that uh, on the night that he had chosen to bring them out of Egypt, uh, they were to slaughter a lamb and sprinkle some of the lamb's blood on the doorposts and on the, the lintels of their houses so that the angel of death would see the blood and pass over their houses as he went through Egypt, killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. That was the final plague. Well, the Israelites were also to bake bread without using any leaven because there would be no time to wait for the dough to rise as they fled from Egypt. They needed to get out in a hurry. Well, in their commemoration of the Passover each year, the Lord had instructed them to remove all leaven from their houses because it represented uh, the former life when they were enslaved in pagan and idolatrous Egypt and had passed over into a new life as God's own people in the promised land. So with that background in mind, notice again what Paul says in verse 7. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So as followers of Jesus, believers are to clean out the old leaven. Well, what's that? It's their sin. They're, they're to get rid of the old sin patterns of immoral actions and speech, of sinful thoughts, attitudes. Believers are to be a new lump that has no leaven. But then Paul adds, just as you are in fact unleavened. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> How can you clean out the leaven if you're already unleavened? Well, what he's talking about here is that positionally, every believer at the moment of salvation has been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But as a new creation in Christ, each believer is no longer enslaved to sin and now must progressively get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. That's how the writer of the book of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 12.1. Believers are to work toward living holy lives consistent with the reality of their position in Christ. That's the point that Paul is making. Well, then he concludes verse 7 by declaring, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. 
that just as the blood of the sacrificial lamb was the means of God sparing the firstborn of Israel and accomplishing their, their rescue from slavery in Egypt, so Jesus as our Passover lamb voluntarily sacrificed himself uh, to set every person who would ever believe in him uh, free from the bondage uh, to their sin, the slavery to sin. Well, then Paul concludes this paragraph with verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, the feast that Paul refers to here, he's not talking about the Passover. It's simply daily life as, as a Christian. You know, we kind of, we kind of feast on the Lord uh, daily uh, now that we are uh, in Christ. It's, it's an ongoing celebration of God's rescue of us through Jesus' sacrifice. It's the celebration of what God has done uh, through Jesus and of the life that we now enjoy together as the church, as the body of Christ. So, what should the Christian celebration not include? As we go through this daily celebration of the goodness of the Lord and of his rescue uh, of us, uh, what should that celebration not include? Our sin. Yeah, our old sin patterns, that old leaven. And then he talks about uh, examples, malice. Malice is the desire to bring harm to someone else. You say that has, that has no place among believers. Or wickedness, that's the carrying out of, of evil. Again, has no place in the church. The point is that the church is to actively get rid of these things through the pursuit of personal holiness and when necessary, through the exercise of church discipline uh, when there is a, a brother or a sister who has uh, fallen into a pattern of, of persistent sin. And why? It's so that the church will be holy and pure and characterized by sincerity and truth, as Paul says here at the end of the verse. The church is to be an open book with nothing to hide and nothing to speak uh, but truth. Well, then in the final paragraph of this chapter, Paul seeks to clarify a point of misunderstanding as he offers the biblical perspective on judgment. Look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, but with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So Paul begins here by um, correcting a wrong perspective. You know, we took a kind of a quick glance at verse 9 earlier uh, that Paul had, had written to them before on the same subject. But it bears repeating that... Uh, uh, this subject of, of immorality, <laughs> it, it, it's not new. Paul had already talked to them about this, had written to them about this. But the statement in verse 10 makes it clear that the Corinthians had misunderstood Paul's teaching. Again, look at 9 and 10. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. 
So when Paul said, don't associate with immoral people, who did the Corinthians think he was talking about? People outside the church, unbelievers. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, we're to stay away from immoral people, so we'll just gather in our holy huddle and you know, we won't worry about what's going on out there in the world. We'll just stay away from them. What effect do you think that would have, uh, that sort of mindset? What kind of effect might that have on evangelism? Uh, <laughs> probably not too good. It would certainly pare down the mission field, wouldn't it? It would be the, uh, the only unbelievers you would talk to are people that you know, morally are kind of like us. Yeah, and certainly that's not what Paul was instructing them about at all. This idea of Christians separating themselves from the world uh, is an old idea, and it actually became widespread in medieval Europe, as you probably know if you've studied uh, European history, uh, through the construction of thousands of monasteries that spread throughout the continent. You know, the idea of monasteries was that they were to be ideal communities. They were to, to reflect the holiness of God and each one would be kind of like a city on a hill, as Jesus uh, used that phrase, uh, serving as a beacon to draw people to the faith. That was, that was sort of their idea. But clearly, that concept is a misinterpretation of Jesus' teaching and was the opposite of what Paul is saying here in verse 10. You know, not only that, but the practice of monasticism runs counter to the entire focus of Jesus' ministry. Remember what the Pharisees and Sadducees accused Jesus of? Yeah, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> uh, Jesus' ministry was characterized by uh, dealing with those who had a great need for him, those who were caught up in sin. And then think about his command in the Great Commission. <laughs> They're to go into the world, uh, not isolate themselves from it. So the Corinthians, they were not to isolate themselves from the world. And in his earlier letter, what had Paul actually called them to do? He had instructed them regarding the necessity of separating from unrepentant believers. Look at verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So if we encounter someone who has a clear understanding of the gospel and who professes to be a Christian... You know, we are not in a position to, to conclude otherwise. If somebody understands the gospel and they are professing Christ, uh, we can't see what's in their heart. But it's certainly possible for someone to profess Christ and in reality not be a true believer at all. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he spoke of the, of the tares among the wheat, that it can be hard to tell the difference between the real and the false, but that God will sort it all out at the judgment. However, when a person professes Christ and yet clings to a lifestyle characterized by an unbroken pattern of sin, uh, they are not to be received into the fellowship of the church as if everything is okay. Quite the opposite. Such a person is to be lovingly confronted by members of the church body following the steps of church discipline that Jesus outlined in Matthew 18 as we saw earlier. And again,